Welcome to the Community Feedback Loop, a weekly podcast about sharing conversations between people in gaming and esports focused on community, public relations, and how we communicate in the video game industry. I'm Bob Holtzman, the host for the show. I've worked in games since 2007 and founded Co-op Mode Communications, a consultancy that offers public relations for games as a service and the communities who support them. Follow Co-op Mode Communications on LinkedIn. You can connect with me via the links in the episode's description. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Drop a follow on Spotify. Please support the show if you like what we're doing. And on that, let's throw it to our interview. All right, today's conversation is going to be a really interesting one. Um, I would guess our guest probably knows as many indie game developers as any person on the planet. He's also incredibly well-versed on the broader games industry, which is one of my personal favorite topics. Uh, It's such a joy to be part of the industry. It's fun to talk about, too. He's the former head of GDC, Game Developer Magazine, and Gama Sutra, and he's now currently running Game Discover Co. It's his new agency that seeks to answer, how do players find, buy, and enjoy your premium PC or console game? Please welcome Simon Carlos to the Community Feedback Loop. Hey there, it's uh, great to be here. All right, Simon. Um, I have been reading the uh, newsletter that you put out for Game Discover Co. and I recently became a subscriber. Um, and it feels like this is a pretty big difference from your work. Um, or excuse me, I should say it's a pretty big difference from my work uh, at Co-op Mode Communications because I tend to focus on these massively multiplayer experiences while... You know, you're really helping indie developers, you know, sell their games on Steam, Epic Game Store. And, you know, as I recently asked in one of our um, uh, one of your uh, Discord server chats, uh, Roblox. So for me, what I find really compelling is that you really sought out a very specific question. Like what made you realize that this question was something that people need to answer and also that you could build an audience and even a community around this very question that you're trying to solve or answer. Sure. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, I've had a long history around independent games and they've tended to be like premium, what I call premium games, i.e. games you, you buy once and play all the way through or play repeatedly. And, uh, you know, and obviously that was a lot of my history co-founding the independent game summit at GDC. I was working at the independent games festival for a long time. So I've always had a passion for that type of game. And what I tended to find is a lot of the business know-how has been flowing into the, um, free to play, uh, microtransaction end of the business, but there really hasn't been so much good business analysis, uh, or numbers analysis of this premium side of things. And it's getting more and more competitive. So, uh, something that I really thought was seeking to answer with Game Discover Co is, um, if you take a very kind of numbers based approach and a very kind of logic based approach to how, how you can do, um, how you can make your game popular and also some some kind of some kind of art as well you know like why does the game have a hook and, and things like that is still very much art rather than science but, but, but if you take this somewhat analytical approach you know, can it really improve your chances of doing well and I think I think the answer is yes and I think that many um, indie devs who are stuck in the kind of I want to make the game that I think is going to be cool um, can stand to learn just just a little bit from you know more more analytical side of things. So that's what I'm really trying to bring with Game Discover Code. Yeah, it's it's definitely we talk about this a lot 
on the community feedback loop this this balance between the art and science of of games right there's you know there's an art to marketing a game there's an art to the concept of a game and then there's the science of it like what makes it fun um well if you you know like think about big multiplayer games if you nerf or buff something you can literally make a game unfun in one patch what um for you when you think about this audience of indie game developers like what do you see as their biggest challenge in this space is it what you said where you know they want to be auteurs and they just want to make the game they want to make or is it the comp- competitiveness of the space now i mean we're talking about there's so many indie games that come out on a daily basis i i don't really see how you differentiate yourself and then this is a big one. Sorry, I'm asking three questions at once. It's ridiculous. <laughs> um, but this is a big one. And I think you've done a really good job talking about this in to your, your audience and your community. Steam kind of has a game... Like, there's games that Steam players like better than other genres. And if you don't kind of hit those genres, you're going to really struggle. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it is supply and demand. Like, I, I find a, a lot of people transfer their feelings about this onto the platforms. Uh, you know, they're very much like, my game didn't sell because Steam effed this up or, or whatever. And and I think, yeah, what I've been trying to do a little bit, and I think I'm fairly independent observer, is sort of come back to like, you know, there's a lot of supply and demand here, and you have to be cognizant of supply and demand. And it's definitely true. Like, do some analysis based on some good third-party websites about, you know, the median the median revenue for certain Steam tags. And, and currently, if you make a 4X game, you know, a pretty deep strategy game, the, the, the median Steam tag, if you get classified with that tag, I think is, uh, the median Steam revenue is $30,000. If you do a puzzle platformer, the median Steam revenue is $800. So that's just a real obvious uh, thing where now there's all kinds of reasons why that happens. And I will say, you know, often, uh, you know, people can very easily make puzzle platformers. It's more difficult to make 4X games. They cost more money. So, so this isn't necessarily a always go for the high tag games on Steam. And there's also things like, um, you know, a lot of the highest tag games on Steam don't play well on console so you really have to have to bear that in mind but yeah I, I do think that a lot of the challenge is getting noticed and so you've sort of got two problems with getting noticed one is does your game have a good hook and that's something that I'm very kind of passionate about exploring because I don't think a lot of people understand what having a good hook really means for a game at least not a steam game and then the other half is yeah where, what's your what's your competitive market like and you know I see a lot of pitches to publishers which will cite the top three grossing games in a certain genre or tag and i think that's fine uh but i think you know you also and that's probably good for your publisher pitch but you also have to be realistic about you know is there a massive drop off to all the other games uh you know is this actually a pretty fertile genre so i think yeah a lot of that kind of slightly analytical stuff but also talking about hook which is less less analytical i think so talk to me what what does a hook mean for you because i mean if i tried to answer that question i would probably ramble for five minutes and then say nothing so, so yeah. So, I mean, as far as hook goes, I certainly have an have an answer for hook, and that's and that's what I've been doing in a talk I've been giving to a few people recently. And, and my answer on hook is that it, I really think it's about what people see and what people are attached and excited about in the first five or ten seconds of looking at a GIF of your game or looking at a video of your game. And I think I think a lot of people have problems because they're making a game and they think about, oh well, uh, I'm making it; it's got to play really well, and it does. But actually 
actually the you know the gut reaction of people um, and the hook can be subdivided into a whole bunch of things. But how, that, how does it make people feel immediately they see it is really important. And I think people do need to spend a, a lot more time thinking about that. I agree. Like, I mean, that, and that's a much better answer than I would have given. Um, okay, so you've got this. What, what do you call, you know, like your newsletter readers? Do you call it your audience? Like, are you still kind of thinking like a journalist? Do you call it a community? Do you differentiate between your paid subscribers that are in your Discord from, you know, just the, the regular old industry pro who's who's just, you know, on your free side? Like, how do you look at the people that are reading your content? And by the way, like, man, you must write fast because I, I can't keep up with all your content. It's, and it's all really good. I, I have to save it for later. And then maybe one night, you know, I'll read two or three of them at once because it's so fascinating and, and worthy of, of the time. I don't mean to, you know, toot your horn, but it, it's really interesting stuff. No, I appreciate that. Yeah, and it is true. I'm a very fast writer, and I think I've calculated I'm writing 150,000 words a year on the newsletter right now. So it's not surprising that you might have trouble keeping up because that is a couple of, a couple of novels worth. But I, I don't. I only spend about half my week on it. I just I just store up a, a, a lot of links and kind of a lot of thoughts and just disgorge them quite quickly. But yeah, um, as far as audience, it's a really good point because I have a very wide audience. Like it's really everything for me. Like I definitely have. People, I have people from investment banks who subscribe to the newsletter. I have people from platforms. I have people from, um, you know, from, from larger publishers, uh, medium publishers, small publishers, independent developers. So, um, you know, and, and partly because of that, my, my kind of writing varies quite a lot because I do do some very broad trend stuff about, you know, like I've done stuff on the epic Apple lawsuit and that's not really, you know, super relevant to a super tiny indie, but I think they're still, still interested in it. But, um, I, I basically try and focus my paid subscriber content more to that community. And that community is people who are mainly people who are publishing games on Steam and probably also Switch. And so, the, and, and so certainly my, my paid, I have one paid newsletter a week and that, and that gets very deep into trends, mainly on Steam and switch also a little bit recently i've been doing some twitch twitch trends which which go a little bit wider um but yeah i, I really try and get into that because there's actually very little good metrics on uh, how games are performing on on steam how they do before release and also on switch you know how how games are really doing so i, I think that's the yeah that, that's a lot of my audience and community but yeah i also have also have a discord server that's just for paid subscribers so we tend to find that a lot of people in there are interested in more than nitty gritty, but there are definitely some people in there, uh, probably probably like yourself, who's not 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 specifically doing this, but is just interested in the space in general and um, and is 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 just interested in talking about it. So yeah, it's 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 quite quite a wide, quite a broad church, as you say. So I have to think about that. Well, I mean, just so so the tagline for my business is PR for games as a service and the communities who support them. So I, I'm actually actively dodging a lot of the, the very titles that you're focused on, these premium one-off sales. Uh, and it's for a couple of reasons. Like one, you know, and we're, we'll talk about, I think we're going we're gonna to get into some of the history between us, um, like good positive history um, between us from my time at Nexon. And, um, you know, I've just always been in gas. I've always worked in games as a service. Um, and frankly, I think there's just some really amazing PR people that I don't want to compete with 
they're really good at identifying, you know, I think the hook that you talked about and, and carrying that over into, um, you know, a media members, uh, kind of wheelhouse. And I just don't, I don't think that's my, my skill set personally. So, um, but what I do find interesting is, you know, there's this huge audience or, you know, I'm going to call it community moving forward. Like there's this huge community of game developers. They're all eager to learn. They're all artists and scientists. What's it like managing them? You know, are they as toxic as the general gaming audience? Like, you know, what, are, what, what is it like? Because I don't know that I would be ready to come in and like, you know, and I've managed audiences and communities. I don't know that I'd be ready to come in and just be like, here, let me take over your Discord server for a week. I, I think I'd struggle. Yeah, no, I mean, it's interesting because obviously I've had a long history of uh, working with developers at GDC as well. And, you know, very much the GDC advisory boards would program all the content. And I was very much kind of, you know, sometimes participating in those and sometimes, um, you know, sort of overseeing strategy on like what summits are we going to do next to GDC and who are we going to invite to help us program them. So, yeah, I've tended to find, you know, I think. I think developers can be tribal is what sort of one of my comments. And I think there are certain tribes of developers. And so you do, you, you do run into issues, you know, like I think, for example, you know, you know, programmers, I'd say there's a lot of old school programmers who really love the art, the art of programming and are likely upset that Unity has made it easy to spend $50 in the asset store to buy something that they probably just spent two years <laughs> making. Uh, there's a lot of commoditization stuff been going on on the development side, which, which can, can be weird especially to the older school folks. I'd also say it's opened up a ton of opportunities to do like um, amazing stuff. But um, it's certainly it's certainly, it's certainly complicated some of, the, some of the communities, I think. And so, yeah, I, I think stuff shifted there a little bit. I think, honestly, with, with, with my newsletter and with my community uh, on Game Discover Co., um, the people who are most interested in it are the people who already work in the space and want to get a bit kind of more data and takeaway centric. So it's sort of fairly, fairly, fairly easy for me. Um, I think, I think the people who are less into that will just not engage with me. <laughs> but I think if you, if you have a broader, yeah, a, a broader church like GDC as a whole, you know, I definitely think it's true. There's always been a lot of kind of constituent parts in, in, in those developer communities. But what I think GDC has done successfully is to, you know, carve out rooms and areas for, for those birds of a feather to really come together. And then you don't get like a, yeah, the, you know, the super hardcore programmer who's sort of, you know, grumpy about the commoditization side, having to, uh, having to share the room with the Unity folk who, the folks who set it up or, you know, how, however, however that works. So I think, I think, I think the birds of a feather approach really works. And actually, I think Game Discover Co is a bit of a birds of a feather setup as well. All right. So you talked a little bit about GDC. I, I want to talk about GDC because you worked on it for so long and it's such an interesting, it's such an f- interesting event because, you know, I feel like every other event in our in games will like really faith face a lot of wrath. And, and to me, I feel like the biggest uh, complaint about GDC is that it's in San Francisco and it's expensive and it's messy and it's dirty. And it's like just, you know, we all kind of like love it. But then we're also like up, kind of upset with the nature of San Francisco right now. Um, you, you know, I don't want to get into that because I don't know it well enough to get into it, but um, it just feels like it's an event that everybody kind of loves. And like you said, how much of this, like being able to kind of like find your group and the work done to 
offer so many different choices for these different groups. You know, how much of that do you contribute to the success of the event? Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, GDC is sort of a self-organizing event in some ways because there's an advisory board and they program content and then people come and see the content. So I think anyone like myself who's been behind the scenes on it, we're, to some extent, we're just sort of allowing the advisory board uh, to do that and, and sort of permitting them to do that. And I think that's, that's sort of one of the keys to, I think, its long-term success, which is, um, you know, I think um, the, the advisory boards and honestly, the organizers have been very uh, keen to present the best content. And when you're keen to present, present the best content, you sort of have a core to the show that other staff has formed around. And now there's a lot of business done around the show because everybody comes and, you know, there's a show floor and, you know, all, the, all, all that type of stuff. So, so, so for me, it's always been about the quality of the content, even if a lot of people who come to GDC don't, don't go to talks. And I think, you know, if you look at, you know, there's a pretty complex back end for for GDC talk submissions and there's historical data about speakers going back 15 or 20 years and literally the comments that were made on their talks and what they scored and all this stuff is taken pretty seriously from actually a metrics point of view which I think some people don't always appreciate I think they think you know just stick any old person on stage or whatever so so um, you know and yeah I I spoke at GDC once and I don't like to think about the responses I got (laughs) <laughs> because it was like, on one hand, like I'll be totally upfront. It introduced me to people that furthered my career in, in amazing ways. And they sat in the audience and they said, we love this talk. We want to work with you. But on the other hand, the feedback I got was incredibly hard. It was harsh. You know, why are you talking about this? Like, I expected you to go deeper. And I'm like, I had 20 minutes. Like, you know, <laughs> I, I gave you as much of the playbook as I could. Um, but it was an incredible experience. And I remember like, you know, just knowing that I can say that. I mean, I still brag about it all the time. Oh, yeah, I spoke at GTC. Like, you know, and I don't I mean, I've done other panels and I've moderated stuff at like kind of every like major event besides E3, you know, but at E3, I've ran like press rooms, you know, so it's like, mm-hmm. but GDC, like there's a weight to it. Um, and I, you know, like I'm going to, I'm going to give you like the reason why I think it is. And I think all the things you said that it's so, there's so much involvement from the industry and that makes it important to the industry. But I think there's another thing to it as well. And that's the fact that there's just been a lot of talent and a lot of passion from the people I've met that worked, uh, at, I guess it's called Informa now. Um, but you know, that worked through Gama Sutra, that worked at GDC, you know, um, I think about you, I think about Brandon Sheffield, I think about Lee Alexander, Mike Rose, Chris Morris, Christian Nutt, Frank Cifaldi, um, Chris Graft's still there. Like, it just seems like these are people who really care about the industry, um, on a deep level and, and not only care, but are smart about it, like really understand it, um, you know, how much of that has to do with why GDC has worked? Yeah, I mean, we've had the advantage of having, as you say, we've sort of had an event and then we've had a, a media arm, whether it be Gama Sutra or Game Develop Magazine. And you're right, that's really helped to cross-pollinate. Like, honestly, sometimes in the past, I would say that's actually been under underdone, if you know what I mean. We sort of haven't done the best job of... Um, you know, when I was working there, we were getting better at it, but, you know, getting, getting the expertise of the Gama Sutra editors into how we pick stuff for GDC. But there's, there's a lot of kind of cross pollination there. And I think what's really happened is 
to your point, like, like Arma Sutra, a games developer magazine, have always hired, uh, journalists or thinkers who aren't, aren't, haven't really come from the consumer side of things. And so that's really helped to open them up to wider business, uh, perspectives. And that's why, you know, Lee, Lee now, now, now works in game narrative and Mike's uh, running no more robots. And so they very much come into the industry in more kind of, um, I'd, I'd say creative, creative facing ways. So yeah, I, th- I think that's been amazing. And I think, I think a lot of it is we've sort of had some ability to, um, you know, to staff, to staff and fund that because of how Garmin Sutra and GDC had worked together. And yeah, I, I, I think having a slightly, having a slightly deeper approach has helped us, especially when honestly from day to day it is the advisory boards who pick the content. Uh, but then if we're talking about like next year, like what new summit, um, you know, were we going to start up or what's the really interesting new area? Uh, then I think, um, you know, it's, it's really been helpful to, you know, talk to editors and talk to people who have been re- really close to this and sort of, sort of say things about that. Cause I think it's a danger as the organizing entity, you can get a little bit stale and then you, and then, and then you look 10, 10 years later and you're still running the casual game summit and you're like, oops. And then, and then it's a bit late. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, it's funny you bring that up. Cause I remember the one year I went to casual connect in Seattle and I was like, actually like really blown away. It was a huge event that year. I was working on casual games. I was working on a social mobile title, you know, licensed social mobile title. Um, is that even, does people even understand what that means? I wonder it's such a gobbledygook of, cliches but that's what it was it was a game for facebook and a game for ios um and it's dead you know casual connects long dead buried but you're right gdc's because of its kind of broader appeal it it carries on okay one more thing on the uh on kind of the gamma sutra side of things that i want to talk about is um and this is going to kind of circle back to what you're doing now um one of the reasons why I have such a fond um, appreciation for a lot of that staff was their willingness to talk about free to play at a time when free to play was not the the leader of the industry. It was actually um, not even believed as a possible model in the West. Um, we're talking 2007 to 2009. I was just starting in the industry. And yet I would consistently be able to get like really thoughtful interviews with Nexon leadership, guys like Min Kim and, you know, people like, like Lee and Brandon. And, um, you know, they got it in a way that it felt like a lot of the, the industry. And like you said, the consumer reporters just didn't like, man, how many times I got told no about Maple Story? I, I can't tell you. Like, I have no idea. Um, even like when we were trying to do a release of Cartwrighter in the West, which was this huge cultural thing in Korea, it was so hard. It was so hard. Um, and of course, that all changed once the iPhone came out and League of Legends hit. And, and you know, now it's like much more about, well, who makes the game and, you know, what's its, you know, they don't think about the business model as a decision in, what to cover and what not to cover. So Simon, I say all this and I, I'm, I'm talking about how your team, your team really got free to play 15 years ago. And here you are still working on premium games. 
Yeah, that's, that's, that's a good point. And I, I would say that's particularly Brandon. Like, you know, Brandon has a soft spot for Korean companies in particular. So he was, he was covering more obscure Korean companies than Nexon at that time, <laughs> I remember. So he, he's, 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 he's definitely got some, so, some real interest in that space. And I think, yeah, I think we have as well. I think what, what we found is, and what I find as well is like, I'd love to cover free to play in the same way that I cover premium on game discover code. But the problem is, um, most of the monetization aspects of it are um, so specific and proprietary and worth so much money if you get them right or wrong that no one wants to talk about it publicly. You know, it is the difference often, you know, when you're doing paid ads, you know, the difference between like, you know, a, a 10 cent CPI or whatever can make, can, you know, can be gigantic. So the issue we've consistently found with free to play is I've found very few people who want to talk about it honestly uh, on stage at GDC or, or separately because it's just, it's just a commercial, and it's not because they're <laughs> rotten people. It's literally because it's a, it's a commercial advantage. So I think uh, the, the reason that I'm, I'm still working in this space other than being, you know, passionate about games that you uh, sort of these classic indie games is that I'm, I'm able to, to get data it's not always that easy frankly even for game discover co but i found people you know like the guy who the guy who made at academia school simulator which has grossed grossed a million dollars on on steam he gave me you know his full back-end steam i have like screenshots in the newsletter of like every single stat and that's like amazing and i have someone else i'm, I'm working with right now actually who got introduced to me who made i think I'm going to say like five or ten thousand dollars on on his first Steam game, and again, I'm I'm going to do a newsletter where I just show like all the Steam backend data for that, and that's and that's great because um, that's the kind of thing it's just incredibly difficult to do in the in the free to play space. So I guess I guess that's probably the answer. Like the like the transparency I always love is just difficult to come by in 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 free to play. I mean, I think games as a service is actually easier to do, but 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 specific specifically free to play on the more mobile side, it can be very difficult. I think that makes a lot of sense. Okay, so we're talking indie games. Um, I don't have a deep history with indies, but I I could say I I was p- along for the ride on a big indie, Kerbal Space Program. Um, and to be like super fair, like I just boarded like literally like as they closed the doors for takeoff because I think I joined within days of them going live on steam early access. And then like the first thing that I actually was involved with was the steam summer sale that, that summer. And it was like, you could just, the, the, the tenor in the room changed so much among, you know, leadership at squad because they went, I mean, it literally made them rich, you know, like Mm -hmm. it, it, it was life changing money for them. Um, so my question for you is, I've seen it. I've seen the big winner. I was part of it. I un- I do understand what made Kerbal a success. Um, should should I should I just avoid working on indie games? Um, like content, kind of continue along the path I'm on um, because you know I already kind of hit the jackpot and thinking that I'm going to hit the lottery twice is crazy. Or should it be like, no, Bob, you know the formula, and if you pay attention, you should be able to continue to pick winners. Yeah, no, it's, it's a good question. And there is, there is a little bit of formula here, but I would actually say, you know, the, the, the hit rate on indies is just uh, very low. Just, just, it just is. So I, I actually think, you know, you talk about kind of the games of service and community led stuff. A lot of the stuff I'm telling indies to do nowadays is games as a service and community-led stuff, even even if it's not monetized like that. Uh, and sometimes it is monetized like that. So so I actually think, yeah, yeah, the, you know, the concept of making, you know, 
I mean, obviously, and Kerbal did a good job, obviously, as, as of games as a service style updates as well. So it's 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 certainly not not, not alone in that. But yeah, I think in, in terms of how we think about indies, like a lot of the consulting work I do, um, in addition to the newsletter, is with mid-sized publishers. And so, you know, what I'm trying to help them with is, you know, you've got eight games signed or, or whatever. You know, how do you intelligently spread your bets uh, so so that you have, uh, you know, some some titles that could break out and some titles that won't because with the best will in the world, you still have that that supply and demand issue with 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 indies, and so I, I think actually portfolio management. Unfortunately, as a single independent developer, you can't really portfolio manage. You can only really work on, on one game at a time. But I think I think as a mid-sized indie publisher, if you're publishing premium games, uh, portfolio management for me is far more important than almost anything else because I think I think marketing can get you so far, but you, you need to have that. You need to have that spark, that kind of hook, spark of hook in there in the first place to really take it over the top. And, um, that really comes when you're, when, when you're signing, at the point you're signing games, you, you need to have a real, real good grasp of whether it has that or not. So, so that's, I, I continually, especially when I work with other companies, I'm continually trying to get earlier in the process. So I'm kind of like, well, you brought me in to help with this. Can I help earlier in the process? Can I help before you sign the game? Because a lot of the time I feel like I'm just, pushing a boulder uphill <laughs> and it's just not that helpful. It, it, some, I, I was listening to something and this, this reminds me of that, Simon. And it's this idea that like, I think it was Rich Vogel on another podcast um, who is, you know, a kind of an iconic community leader, worked on Ultima Online, now works for Certain Affinity. And if I, I don't want to misquote him, but I'm pretty sure Rich said, um, you know, it used to be that everybody was kind of just working to get the game out and whether it was marketing or whatever, it was all kind of one team. And then as things got bigger and bigger and broader, publishing and development had this schism. And the reality is for live service games is that that schism needs to go away because... um if you have a mar- and, and this is where I think a lot of the hate in marketing comes from, in at least on the live service side, and maybe on the, the packaged or premium versions as well, which is this idea that marketing is not in touch with what the actual player wants. You know, what do you think about that? And is that something that you're seeing like kind of like a return to on the indie side? Because it is, you know, these two to five to 10 man shop, 10 people shops that are, you know, they're forced to do everything. Yeah, it's a really interesting point. It's something I've actually been running into even on the publisher side, which is, um, you know, you sort of have independent publishers who sign premium games and those developers are often doing some, I guess you call it marketing themselves. It's a really interesting question and problem about how those knit together. Because I think on the publisher side, you, you, you're right. The marketing is sometimes a little bit bigger picture. And I sort of call it kind of like the, the, the story beats, you know, you, you know, before you launch, there's these four big things you're going to do and you're going to orient a lot of your campaigns around that. But you need that trickle of community interaction and information at the same time. And I think the best the best Steam games. I keep, I keep showing people. There's a there's a there's a game called The Rift Breaker that has a lot of Steam wishlists in the hundreds of thousands, and they, and they're very good at bridging that gap. They have, I think, a couple of posts a week on their Steam news page, which I think all of them are pretty interesting, and so they're really talking to their community and working with their Discord. But I actually think that is one of the, one of the biggest pain points in in marketing for for these indie games right now. Even if you have a publisher, which is how do you 
how do you efficiently bridge? Like, let's say you're a publisher and you've signed a game that's really good from the developer, but the developer doesn't want to talk to anyone and just wants to make the game. I, you may even have to employ like, like someone to tease information out of the developer so you can present it in an attractive fashion because, uh, because the alternative is I think you just do your high-level marketing beats and that only gets you part of the way. So yeah, it's definitely a problem in, in the space I work in. Where, okay, so we've talked a lot about games as a service. We've talked a lot about kind of the indie shops. Okay, just today, I was reading your newsletter and you were sharing the data around Fortnite's revenue that you pulled from the lawsuit. And I mean, A, like I shared that with about two or three different groups. Everyone responded. Like that was such a powerful data point, right? And it was like 128 million for PlayStation, 80 million for Xbox, like, you know, and it went down and down. Um, where are we at right now with like what? this console or cross-platform like you know how is this affecting indies because you know you said you focus on steam and switch but you know i mean when fortnite's making 40 million on switch monthly that's probably going to get a lot of attention from big companies that realize we we've been like kind of missing the boat here um and what what what's the role that smaller independent games are going to play in this ecosystem moving forward? Because I think I, I think we're at a, a we're on the verge of another big sea change. And I don't think we're there yet, but I think it's coming in the next like two to four years. Yeah, I, I've I've talked about what I think is going to happen in the newsletter a bit. And to your point, yeah, Switch is becoming more attractive to for, for free to play games, which I think and games as a service games, which is interesting. I know Apex Apex Legends, I think is is is, is on there now though. So uh, yeah, so I, I think it's I think it's definitely changing. And I do think I've sort of commented. I think what's happening is especially you know you're seeing the rise of Game Pass, and Game Pass is a bit of a I'd say bugbear for me because like I, I, I appear to be the only person who has a negative word to say about Game Pass. It's like literally being your game of articles about it that are like um, nope everyone says it's fine absolutely everybody and so so my general comment on it is that I personally really love Game Pass anyone who is included as a developer on Game Pass really loves Game Pass but I think people are not fully thinking through the long term gatekeeping effects of Game Pass uh, especially for games that are not are, are not games of the service games so I think you, I think I think I think you do run into like I think so I think the kind of five year vision of this may be you know, if you, you may monetize it any way you like, but if you're not running a games as a service game, uh, a lot of your money is much more likely to come from from subscription services. If you're a if you're a, if you're a PC or console or console title, because you just don't have anything to talk about after you release the game. Like I've worked on games that have sold really well first week, but they're just they're one-off narrative games, literally nothing to talk about after week one, and your and your long-term sales. Are significantly worse as a, as a result. So I think you know, you're going to see that, and you're going to see people saying, "Oh well, I have a bunch of these games to play on Game Pass. Um, am I going to buy another one on uh, on Steam?" So yeah, I mean, I mean, for me, that's sort of the the hidden bit of game of of, of the rise of Game Pass and other subscription services that I feel like people are. are not looking at it a little bit, and I, I don't blame Xbox because I think, let's face it, all, all other media has switched to a subscription. Uh, all, all other media has switched to, a, to this model at this point. Like, like games is one of the only ones that hasn't. So, I just think that that chunk of games, which happens to coincide quite neatly with the kind of games that I talk about on Game Discover Co, are the most at risk from being affected by that. If you don't have those relationships, or if the 
picks of who gets on, on Game Pass of these services are not in your favor. Well, isn't this all cyclical too? Like, okay, I'm going to pull a little bit of an example out of left field here. Um, I'm a pretty big sports fan. I've played a lot of, I've played a lot of sports, watch a lot of sports. And so I had a cable subscription and I still to this day have the equivalent of a cable subscription, uh, that I pay a lot of money. You know, we're talking more than a hundred dollars for, and that's, that bundles in anything from cheddar to my local sports networks or the RSNs as they're called regional sports networks to the big channels. Right. And that model's obviously been something that everyone has hung on to as long as they could. And it's only now that we're starting to see them finally say, okay, we're going to have to rethink this. And a big reason why was the people at the top, the ESPNs, got this big chunk of money from every subscriber. But the little guys also got their little chunk. You think about G4 TV back in the day. I remember like reading like how much they'd get per subscriber. It was, you know, like 50 cents or something. But as that subscription shrunk, you know, they're one of the first to kind of get whacked. And that's why they went away for until now. Um, the reason why I bring this all up is we're seeing this. You're talking about Game Pass. I mean, isn't the real problem that just gamers are so price, price sensitive that, um, you know, even though Game Pass is probably worth 50, 60, $70 a month, gamers have just too, they have too many options. They have too many different ways to discover and access a video game. Uh, whereas a lot of that content on the TV side is really behind strict paywalls. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you're right. There's so much free and inexpensive content out there. There's so much great stuff on itch, itch.io, and there's just, there's just, there's just so much stuff out there. And you're right. I think the, the, the cost of producing this stuff. Um, has just come down and down. I think that's one thing people don't appreciate, especially in the indie space. Like I, I see games regularly where I think a publisher signed them for five hundred thousand dollars, and they signed them for fifty thousand dollars. And you know, and that can and that can and that can totally happen if it's a two or three man team. They're really good at doing stuff, and they're bootstrapping because they just left left a trip left a trip late. So uh, yeah, so 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 I think there's all kinds of stuff that's affecting just the amount of stuff flooding the market right now. Even from even from extra play folks can be very high, and um, yeah, and the amount of quality is very high. So yeah, so I think it's it, the, people are flooding the market, and the concept of I think people want to, to your point, like TVs manage to cost a lot more money. And I think over time, you know, you know, Game Pass is trying to increase. I mean, obviously at this point, most people are paying 15 bucks a month instead of 10 because, because you need your live, live gold or you need your multi-platform. So I do expect this to be a gradual creep up. And I also think there might be some boutique subscription services in the future that might end up getting bundled because, you know, that happened with EA Play. I mean, EA Play is now for now, bundled with, with, with Xbox Game Pass. So I could see, I could see that happening. So you're right. We might end up reinventing the wheel and eventually you'll have a 50 or $60 a month <laughs> game subscription service that has just everything in it. I don't know, but um, yeah, well, we'll have to see. I mean, that makes the most sense for the industry, right? Like if you, yeah. if you pay $60 a month, um, that's like buying a new game a month. That's a, that's a, that's a really good customer for a console, right? All right. So Simon, you're talking about the cost going down for indie dev. You talk about the challenge of the hit rate. So it's hard. You have to be a really confident, smart, savvy indie publisher to, you know, and we, they're, they're out there. There's a bunch of them. You know, I'm sure you could rattle off a, off, off the top of your head, a bunch of them. 
But I see the opposite happening in games as a service. The cost of business is going up. The teams are getting bigger. The amount of content that they have to deliver on a regular cadence is climbing. Um, what is the advantage that a good indie developer can can take knowing this information uh, and knowing that you know there's still a, clearly a market for smaller games and is this why Valheim was such a success? Like, is this kind of like that sweet spot where the games like Valheim and maybe I haven't played Loop Hero yet, so I'm not as familiar with it, but I think that's another one that really struck a chord with people. Maybe not quite as games as servicey, but do you get my question? Like, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I see where you're coming from. Yeah, and, and the answer is, I think there's, you know, indies honestly can, and I mentioned I'm encouraging more indies to do games as a service like things. Like, indies can do. And frankly, more indies should do sandbox and games as a service style, style things. I'm actually working with a uh, with, with a developer right now, and he just he just announced a game called in, called, called Instruments of Destruction, and it's a uh, it's a besieged style game where you build machines and you destroy things. And I think it's going to be. I'm just sort of helping him out. I normally just work with publishers, but I, I'm I'm a fan of his, so I'm helping out a little bit with business advice. And um, yeah, and what I'm what I'm seeing on it is it's it's a sandboxy game. It's made by one person, and uh, it has a lot of ability to have all the stuff you talk about with bigger stuff like user generated content. Like it can absolutely do user generated content with Mod.io or with Steam Workshop very easily. It can do it can do games as a service style updates, uh, and it's just and it's just one guy. So I think. I think there's a and Valheim to your point Valheim as I understand it had a very small initial dev team I don't know what they are now but I think it was less than 10 people so um, yeah so, so I think you're, to your point there isn't the ability to break out into this kind of games as a service sized revenue space as an indie if you want to do that but there's obviously I still say a, a minority of traditional indies want to do that I think a majority of traditional indies still want to make a, a kind of um, beautifully crafted one-off game, potentially where they don't have to worry about updating it much after they release it. I think that's probably the more traditional approach. Um, okay, so let's talk about these like triple uh, I indies that we've seen crush g- games to service and and really kind of I think excite and maybe surprise some of us. Let's talk about Fall Guys. And let's talk about Among Us. Um, let's start with Among Us because my kids play it quite a bit. Um, and it's, it was this just like lightning in a bottle, just the right time, right place, the right moment with the pandemic, because this was a game that was, you know, no one cared. And then suddenly it was like the perfect game for the moment. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think the pandemic really helped. And I think but a lot of it is, and it's obviously a, obviously a classic kind of trope of, you know, games like Werewolf and stuff like that. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's definitely a, well, a very well-established game design paradigm. It's just one of those games that works incredibly well for uh, streamers. And, and this is a lot of it nowadays. When I, I do talks recently, I've sort of said, like, like, I love the traditional media, but I look at whether they're affecting Steam sales or wish lists, and with very few exceptions, not that much. And it really is uh, streamers that, that do that. So I think um, when you talk about streamer-friendly games, you have a very high, uh, a very low hit rate in the sense that it's really just those few games that end up going viral. So obviously Among Us and, and Fall Guys to some extent was one of those. And I think it was, you know, it, it allows for a couple of really important things. It allows for 
group streamer team ups, which is great because the streamers love it because they get kind of like cross audience. And then other people love it because personalities can interact with each other. And I think you sort of have to go back to like why, you know, certain types of stream game are popular. And it, yeah, and it's basically, it's, it allows streamers to be performative. And one of the best things you can do to make games successful is to allow streamers to perform because their audience loves them to perform. So I think Among Us is a great one. There's all kinds of emotions that everyone has that, 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 that are performative. There's, there's other ones even in single player games, like for example, games like um, I worked in a game at no, no More Robots called Not Tonight, which is a, like a bouncer simulator. And that got a few big streamers because, because those guys love doing the voices. And so it's like a narrative game and it's like another performative thing. It's not multiplayer, but um, you know, Jacksepticeye did a couple of videos on it and, 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 and he loved it because he was, uh, he was fully doing ridiculous accents for like the whole thing. So, so yeah, so I, so I think Among Us is a lot about, it's a lot about, I mean, it's obviously just fun for everyone, but I do think streamer popularity really helped. And that is because it's a great performative game. So I think that's really something to think about. Well, and I mean, Twitch and streaming is kind of one piece of the pie, but I know Shay, um, he's a TikTok fan and, you know, I, I see it in my household. I, I don't watch a lot of TikTok. Uh, there's something about it that always like kind of rubs me weird. I, I, I respect it. It's an amazing platform. Like I'm not shitting on TikTok uh, or anybody that watches it, but I know for me, it, it feels a little bit like I'm falling into this black hole and I don't know why. And I don't think it, I don't think I make good choices in the black hole. Um, <laughs> That's the best part about it. <laughs> <laughs> but we are starting to see a little more action on the game discovery side with it. And, you know, what are you, let's not just talk about TikTok though. Let's talk about kind of social media broad strokes. And then if we want to d dig into TikTok or one of these channels, I've been telling my clients to focus a lot more on fewer channels because I think frankly, a lot of the big channels are either a waste of time, demand you to spend money or just aren't what they used to be in terms of raising awareness and building community. So I've, I've shrunk, but I don't give a lot of, um, I haven't had an opportunity to give a lot of feedback on TikTok yet. Um, so I'm curious where you see TikTok and where you see broader social, you know, in this, uh, you know, in this game discovery uh, process. Yeah, no, that's a really good question. And I've, I've also been working with folks who sort of asked me about that recently. And I think, you know, I, I put TikTok if you can get it right, quite close to the top right now. I've had some examples in my newsletter recently of games. And, you know, I tend to work, because I'm working on Steam, I tend to look at the effect on Steam wishlists. So, you know, so so there's games that have added, yeah, thousands and thousands of Steam wishlists through single, single viral TikToks. And that is just not the case for a lot of other social media. Like, I think, particularly in the indie game space, Twitter... Uh, people spend a lot more time on Twitter than they should do and a lot more time posting uh, marketing on Twitter than they should Thank do you. because, uh, yeah, I, I, I see you on the same page as me because it, it's got a real good uh, immediate kind of all oh, retweets and follows thing. But if you look at like, if you look at the reach and the actual effect, at least I've measured the effect on wish lists, it's very negligible, unfortunately. So I think, um, yeah, so I, so the stuff that I think actually moves a needle in my space, which is probably like Steam and a bit of Switch, uh, is, um, you know, I think, I think Reddit can definitely do that. Although Reddit's quite complicated in terms of who, where you're allowed to post as, as the actual developer. I think, you know, I think, I think, um, I think, I think TikTok is pretty near the top, but there's a lot of TikTok is quite complicated as a platform in terms of how you work out virality. So I'd say 
you can't just post TikToks and expect it to get, you know, you need, you need to be witty. Uh, you need to understand some of the music stuff. Like, um, you know, I, I do, so, I do some work with the Descenders team sometimes and Descenders had some, I mean, Descenders is quite big on TikTok anyway, actually, but it's had some pretty decent sized TikToks because it's been doing stuff like looking at the most popular soundtracks. And I, I don't know if you know on TikTok, you can click on the soundtrack to see other TikToks that use that soundtrack. So that's actually a real good, uh, viral, viral uh, stepping off point. So. All that type of stuff. I think there's a lot, lot of detail in TikTok here that most most game companies haven't been paying any attention to and pro- probably should. So I think yeah, TikTok, Reddit, Imager, Im- Im- Imager is also good in the um, in the in the indie space at least. And then uh, yeah, and then and then besides that, I actually think you can do a lot of the regular stuff. But honestly, much less than the social media. I just think for for indies, keeping a real good kind of news and announcement update like when you're working on a game that's 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 the thing i think people sometimes will spend time on twitter just doing kind of generic tweets but for me it's more like what are you working on this month how can you make it a really good blog post and gif and put it on reddit and the imager and tiktok that's that's sort of the the perfect the perfect situation i guess i think the one you didn't include that i i i point a lot of people to is discord um Oh yeah, I, I don't think of Discord as social media, although I totally should do. But you're, you're completely right that like like Discord is the number. Like I don't suggest anyone launch their game on Steam without without an associated Discord nowadays. So yeah, I'm a massive Discord fan. Yeah, Discord's pretty interesting. Um, you know, and I, I do feel like it's also a little bit on that cyclical side. Like um, I don't know if you saw the news that um, a private equity group bought uh, Yahoo and. Uh, AO, I think AOL. Yeah. And I'm just like, does this mean we get AIM back? Like, is AIM coming back? Uh, I, I, I remember, I remember I was using, I was using a, like a, a, like it was called ICQ and you could dump all the different things. So I had AIM in it and a bunch of other stuff. So yeah, yeah. I, I remember that stuff. Yeah. But yeah, but yeah, yeah, Discord. Yeah. The, the, the issue with Discord at this point is that now everyone's using Discord. Everyone joined too many servers and then they can't keep up on enough of them and then they mute 90% of them. But, uh, you know, I think it's better having some people around and engaged. And I think, uh, particularly for independent developers who have trouble connecting to their audience it's really important because I think a lot of indie devs if you're a, a solo or a small company you don't want to think about what people think about your game it's inherently stressful to you so you just end up like making the game and then sort of shoving it out the door at the end because you just <laughs> sort of don't want to deal with it if you have a discord uh, then you're much more likely to speak to people about what's going on and then you and then the, and they might be super fans but at least then you can like show them builds of the game and get feedback and I think that stuff's really important and a lot of people consciously or unconsciously or a little bit avoidant on that sometimes. <laughs> oh, I think you're hitting onto something that I talk a lot in my circles about. And this is the, um, the fear of letting something out into the wilderness and, and getting, just getting that negative feedback. Um, and, and then having to not only manage the emotional uh, reaction to it, but then like, how do I actually make decisions? And I, I know one of the things we talk about a lot in my group of, I'll say friends for the industry is, how do you encourage developers to let go sooner Earlier, more often, uh, you know, this is one of the this is one of the powers of the some of the big titles that have built this into their systems. You know, League of Legends has the public beta environment or PBE. I think it's public beta. Um, you know, uh, 
we're seeing this more and more where you are pushing information out, gathering feedback, and then adjusting on the fly. Um, and this is not that like shiny bobble that you only bring out for special occasions. This is not the fine china. This is the day-to-day stuff that gets put in the dishwasher over and over and over again. Yeah, it's it's incredibly important, and I think yeah, like like whenever I see games that are doing or have done well, then they do that. You know, some of the work I've done done with No More Robots, there's always private private alphas on Steam of those um, of those titles, and at the end there will be a Steam news post which is, hey, we had our alpha. Here's the stuff you liked, and here's the stuff you didn't like. As a result of this, we're going to be doing this, and you know, and that's that's obviously on a more public level, which you don't have to do, but but certainly on a private level, I know. I I know Valheim, for example, which is a great example. Valheim was running private stuff on itch like 12 or 18 months before it came out on Steam. So that, that, they had a group of beta testers playing it constantly for, I think, at least a year before it came out. Uh, so, um, yeah, I think a, lo- a lot of people are doing this. And you're right. It is about being okay with that. I also think some some developers have issues with uh, players telling them what to do, um, especially if it's a kind of, if they feel like it might be unrepresentative of the whole. So I do think that's somewhat of a fair point. Like you can sometimes get like, a set of super fans who want something that's not going to be representative of what the mass of people want to get. But I think you still want to try and navigate that rather than abdicate that responsibility entirely. There's a lot there, right? There's a lot. You What you said, there's a lot to unpack because, and this is, I think, where, you know, great community management comes in um, because when you have a great community person and they can really understand um, what the community actually is getting at. It it can clear away a lot of that 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 friction between the community and the developer. Do you see? Um, do you see that more? Like I, I see some of the the action going on on the indie side and. Obviously, I know Kerbal had a pretty healthy team. I was one of either between three or four people really working with the community at once. Um, Do you think you're going to see more and more of this going forward? And how do you, you know, advise your indie clients when they're like, well, what sort of help do I get with, you know, managing our community and growing it and nurturing it? You know, what's kind of the, you know, what's kind of your feedback to them when they come to you with these sort of questions? Interestingly, in the indie publisher space, which I often deal with, it's a little bit complicated sometimes because the fact is developers sometimes have really good community. Sometimes the developers themselves are just really good community people and they want to talk to the community. And sometimes the developers just have no interest in it. So that makes it quite difficult to deal with if you're maybe the the head head of marketing and you want to say how much community management should we be doing here and how do we kind of interact with that so um, yeah I think it's definitely not what not one size fits all right yeah I, I guess my comment is I think that on the on the publisher side I do think teams have to step up sometimes when there's sort of a just a I mean maybe the reason one of the reasons a developer signed with a publisher is that they don't want to do that which is, which is fine but then you sort of have to have to step up to kind of kind of uh, you know deal deal with the gulf there and I think yeah so 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 I'd say it's complicated but I'm definitely seeing more more people talk about this a lot of people obviously have hybrid 
especially in smaller publishers, have hybrid marketing and community folks. And, um, and you can also honestly have, have, have Discord mods who work pretty well as community, uh, as community helpers, uh, um, you know, often sometimes unpaid or maybe, maybe partly paid. But yeah, I think there's, there's some publishers that I've worked with who now have folks who are on a Discord for a certain game. And they just sort of like hanging out. And now when the publisher announces a new game, they go and be mod on that new, on that new Discord server, even though it's, it's for a different game. So if you can find people who, who, who like interacting with you like that, then that can, that can certainly work well. But yeah, I'd, I'd say it's, it's a complicated problem because community often, as you say, is sort of in between, in between development and marketing slash publishing. Uh, it's not always clear who is meant to be bridging it or even minimum standards, maybe. I mean, as somebody who's worked inside the factory now for 15 years, A, that changes. B, every company treats it differently. And, and C, I still don't think that any companies like nailed it. You know, I think, um, community is too often seen as just this like problem solver. You know, like you said, I'm trying to get earlier into the process. So that way I can help make recommendations that will better affect your go-to-market strategy. Um, community is really no different. It's like, how do you assure that they're in there at the right time to, um, you know, help you avoid potential pitfalls? Um, much the way PR yeah. will do it, you know, with corporate or business like decisions, you know? Yeah. And it needs to be, this should be a two way process to your point. I think, I think one thing, maybe sometimes people think, you know, the community folks are there to receive complaints from, from, from the community. And actually you'll probably get less complaints from the community if you, if you make it a two way process, because then, then it's very clear to them that there's, there's a process, you know, whereby which people make changes. So yeah, I, I definitely think that's, that's, that's a great point. Okay. So, um, We've talked a ton about discoverability and where you're at today. Um, one of the things I found really interesting, Simon, is that you've, you've developed games. You've, you've been a game designer early in your career. Um, when you think about your, your kind of your journey through the industry, um, and then you juxtapose that towards where we're at as an industry, what advice do you give to people trying to break into games? Yeah, I mean, I was lucky enough when I left university in the UK, I was lucky enough to get hired by Kuja Entertainment just as a graduate game designer without necessarily, I mean, I had, uh, I'd done kind of, I'd done some computer music and stuff. So, uh, so I, I sort of knew I was fairly technically savvy, but I was very lucky to get the opportunity. And I think people don't hire graduate game designers straight out of university anymore. You need to have some kind of um, proof that you know what you're talking about. So yeah, I'd, I'd say a lot of it nowadays is honestly, uh, you know, a- anyone can make games in their bedrooms and actually at least 50% of Steam releases on any given week are done that way. Uh, so I think if you're looking for a good starting point, just, just, just iterating and, and making, and, and making stuff over and over again and improving it is, is a really a great place to get involved. Even getting involved in modding communities. I mean, there's certainly, I know on Descenders, there's at least one employee now who, uh, who started modding, modding tracks for Descenders. And I think it's now, is, 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 is now working, working with the Descenders devs. So I think, I think, I think modding is great for bigger games. I think, um, you know, just making stuff with Unity and, and Unity Asset Store is great. And yeah, I mean, it depends on where you're going. Obviously, if you're going more into maybe the, 
monetization design point, like, like point of view or something like that, then then it's kind of different. But I think, you know, for, for making games that makes sense. And I'm, I'm less of a fan. I mean, I think having degrees and stuff is great. But honestly, I, I haven't tended to hire based on what, what, what degrees people have. I've tended to hire based on their based on their skill set so um yeah i mean i think i think that's important but yeah i think things are changing and also the one thing i like to say about games nowadays is it's a, it is a massive business but it, it's it's not like banking where you're clearly employed or not it's much more like the music industry you know like there's a lot of people who are semi-employed in games or or actually have games on steam but actually have a day job doing something completely different so uh, you know there's a real curve there and you sort of have to understand that that probably curve is getting getting a little bit lower and lower recently so it is uh, you know there's plenty of jobs in games but compared to the amount of people who want jobs in games it's it's pretty busy so i think i think you should you should just bear that in mind and maybe in some cases it does make more sense for you to um you know do, you know work on games but then have another job i think that's i think that's just fine uh, and i think it's just kind of it's just it's just what you want right no i mean i think i think that's it i love that uh the kind of in games i <laughs> that that's almost feels autobiographical to me um, because some you know sometimes when you work with companies that aren't in the like sweet spot of games you know like when I was at Riot it was like okay I'm clearly working in games League of Legends is huge but Riot also was kind of quirky and so you were kind of off on a, like it was like being in um, a really big city for games but like you never left like, you know, 90% of the time I felt like all I talked about was league and with my coworkers, whereas, you know, in other parts of my industry experience, there's much more networking and kind of going beyond the city walls, so to speak. Um, now I was a journalist before I got into video games, not in games journalism like you, but definitely, um, similar industry sports, uh, I think, you know, I draw parallels between the two all the time. I'm, I'm actually trying to break myself of doing it because I think a lot of people in games don't appreciate it. And um, they're probably right. <laughs> um, but one of the things I always think about is like, man, how much better I would have been able to manage like um, PR uh, with like pro sports teams I covered, um, understanding team dynamics, like locker room dynamics, um, because of my experiences working on really big teams. Um, it just, you know, like, you know, if I had known what I know now, boy, I would have probably like, you know, the five great stories I wrote in seven years probably would have been 15 is, you know, <laughs> and I, I'm sure I wrote more of the great stories than that, but you know, I, I'm sure you have the same feeling where there's a couple that really hold near and dear to your heart. What do you wish you knew about the game industry when you were younger? That's, that's a good question. I mean, certainly when I got into it, I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure. I completely. I was working on like early PC, like the, like I worked on a PC game that was bundled with early PC graphics cards. So that was sort of my my, my entree. And then I worked on some PlayStation One titles. So I think early on, I probably didn't understand how much the, how much the industry was going to broaden. I, I might have thought it's more of a kind of a rarefied thing where everyone just works in offices on games. I think a lot of people who worked back then weren't prepared for this. You know, just. Person in their ba- person in their basement makes Undertale and it sells like millions and millions of copies. It's it's. I mean that happened in the eighties with bedroom programmers. I don't know why people didn't think it was going to be cyclical, but I didn't feel like that to me. Um, yeah, and I think I think the other thing I learned, especially when I've started sort of working with bigger teams. I mean, obviously I'm sort of back to a 
back to a solo operator plus kind of kind of kind of friend, friends now. But you know, I've definitely worked on 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 bigger teams. I think yeah, I think appreciating that um, you know you know people are goal orientated, but people are also um, you know, when you work in a company, you, sure, g- getting the job done is the most important thing. But I think I've been accused about being a bit, you know, a bit too specific about that. So, so, so I, I think I think it's really good to also understand it's the, it's the journey that you have uh, have along the way, and it's the kind of environment you have when you do things that actually makes 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 working fun or pleasant or, or what have you. So I think I think it's really good to think about think about things like that. And I don't think I don't think coming into the industry, I I completely. Understand Understood that, yeah, those 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 team dynamics are important, and I think in general, when when I've worked with teams, I'm not sort of a big um, rather kind of kind of leadershipy kind of guy. I try I, I try to give praise and compliments when when I think it think it's due, but you know, I've I've tended to be quite you know quite results orientated, but also fairly fairly relaxed about things. Like things things aren't worth like we shouldn't be shouting about anything. It's 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 video games, right? So. Yeah, I, I guess that's what I've learned. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm I'm like 99% confident we could easily go another hour, but um, let's do the kind of the... Um, we like to ask a couple questions towards the end of the conversation because we think they are interesting and fun. Um, so the first one is, like, what are you currently playing? That's a, that's a good question. Uh, well, I just got I just got a new Pokemon Snap because I have a five year old son and um, I, I I want to he he talks about Pokemon a lot so I, I and I haven't really shown him any Pokemon games and I think the RPGs are a bit much for him right now so I thought he would be interested in in new Pokemon Snap and I'm and I'm enjoying it actually. Uh, I did obviously. I, someone told me actually I, I'm I'm in the Video Game History Foundation with Kelsey Lewin who runs a store called Pink Gorilla in, in Seattle. It's a retro game store and she told me that everyone who bought who bought who bought new pokemon snap on the first evening at her store was like was like the same age as uh, us and had just played the n64 version <laughs> so apparently no young pokemon fans are actually interested in new pokemon snap <laughs> but uh, but yeah I'm, I'm, i just started playing new pokemon snap i'm, I'm a very much a dabbler in games like i have a pretty short attention span I don't really play much multiplayer stuff, um, and I tend to like to play kind of like I've, I'm a big music game historic uh, music game fan historically. And uh, one game in the last couple of years that I've really liked is I'm a massive Peggle fan, and it's a game called Round Guard, which is out on Apple Arcade and also it's on consoles as well. And Round Guard is um, is is Peggle but an RPG roguelite. So literally, you're going around a dungeon by being shot around levels, uh, like like smashing into enemies and breaking open like chests and stuff and it's effing awesome and i feel like not enough people have seen that game so i'm i'm i'm, I'm still playing that well and i have an apple arcade uh subscription that i never use so this is this is a good one this is a good recommendation for me um i i will say uh, shay's gonna laugh because i think the last recording i was like oh, i'm not playing anything but the last couple nights i got back on the PUBG train which has kind of been my go-to game for the last i don't know f- however since it came out um and i've been getting some solid solo top 10 finishes but i haven't been able to close the deal and that's a bad place to be because then i start chasing the dream of winning and then it's like it's like you go up up you're doing good but then you get a little desperate and you start to make a lot more mistakes and you're not as strategic uh especially because i'm a bit of a cockroach so um 
Back on PUBG for me, uh, but it sounds like I'm going to try round guard. Round guard. Um, yes. And then the last one is, um, and this is so important, I think, for community feedback loop, as you know, we're really trying to talk about community and communications in the industry. Like, what's a fascinating community that you're not currently working on that's drawing your attention? So, like something that just exists on the internet that I find really interesting, that uh, or not on the internet that that, uh, that that I that that I can shout out. Is that the idea? It's any community. If you're like my local Facebook group is like just hilarious, and uh, it's any community because really, it's like the reason why I ask this question is a I want to hear what sort of communities attract people. Like I would say this week, it's my son's little league team. You know, nice. because we had a game last night. They brought pizza. It was, uh, you know, the, the, the coach used to like be a co-owner in a Mexican restaurant. So he's talking about how his Cinco de Mayo is so different. And, you know, I, I was keeping score. They're now at the age where they're keeping score. So like for me right now, Simon is an example. I would say, oh, my my son's little league team is a really fascinating community that that I'm a part of and enjoying. Yeah, no, I do have one that I'm actually really liking recently. And it's actually another Discord that's attached to a paid newsletter. And what it is, is there's this um, newsletter called Garbage Day, which is run, run by a guy called Ryan Broderick. And it's basically all about the internet as a community and what weird stuff is going on in the internet as a community. And if you subscribe for a year, it's only 30 bucks. You get access to the Discord. And, and the Discord is very specific. And the Discord is basically a lot of very online people, which I definitely am talking about weird online stuff and um, there's yeah and it's and, it, and it's a lot of fun and there's actually a video games channel in there as well uh, but there's just it's just a whole bunch of channels about internet drama about uh, all kinds of things so I'll give you an example the latest the, the latest issue of, of, of his newsletter if you want to know what he talks about is he sort of talks about stuff like you know who um, who because sometimes people tweet weird opinions. So he's kind of like, how do these weird opinions get into New York Times articles? That's sort of one thing in his in, in his latest one. And then uh, I guess he had something about Jake Paul claiming he FaceTime with Trump, um, <laughs> which was which was interesting. He actually had, actually has something about the new game coming out, Crab Champions, which I guess is made by the guy who made the Crab Rave video. And if anyone has small children, they'll know that Crab Rave is like a serious. Uh, serious small children uh, thing. Uh, so, uh, yeah. So, uh, and then there's a bunch of weird meme stuff. But basically, yeah. So, so the Garbage Day Discord, uh, it's very specific and quite high traffic, but it's definitely my favorite Discord currently. So, yeah, I'm shouting out that. It sounds like a, that sounds like a community worth keeping an eye on. All right. Well, Simon, um, we're going to check out Garbage Day. We're going to check out Round Guard. We're going to continue to try to read all 150,000 words of Game Discover Code newsletter if you're into premium games and the business around them uh, we highly recommend this as, as something you should sign up for um, Simon we really appreciate you taking the time to join us on the community feedback loop thanks it's been a pleasure that's all for our show today thank you so much for listening to the community feedback loop podcast you can listen to previous episodes for more conversations with other amazing people we've met in the video games industry. And please subscribe to Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify to support the show. We'll catch you next week.